His name was George Floyd. I don't know how to start this episode besides by making sure that the dialogue remains centered on this. A man was killed at the hands of those charged with keeping him safe, for no other reason than the color of his skin. His name was George Floyd. I'm a white guy, so honestly, you don't need to be listening to me. The most important thing, especially right now, is to be listening to what black and brown folks are saying on this topic. I have never had any trouble finding a platform from which to speak. But at the same time, this is pretty much the only topic that I've been able to think about for the last couple of weeks, and making podcast episodes is really what I do to help myself process information. Uh, So here we are, I'm making an episode about George Floyd and about the aftermath of his death. I'll be trying to highlight the voices of people of color as much as I can in this episode. So, welcome to the Extra Dimension. I'm your host, Ian R. Buck. Find the show notes for this episode at thenexus.tv slash TED54. So let's start by talking about the responses by the community uh, to George Floyd's death. A lot of people have been very angry, justifiably and understandably. The response to this particular incident has been very, very strong um, for a couple of reasons, I think. Number one, uh, police brutality is a chronic problem that hasn't seemed to be getting better over the years. Um, systemic racism is a chronic problem that, uh, that hasn't seemed to be getting better over the years. And number two, the video of George Floyd's death is, is very strange. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't fit in with many of the other police killings that we've seen over the years. It wasn't a shooting in the heat of the moment. We see Derek Chauvin kneeling on George Floyd's neck for seven minutes, his hand in his pocket. He's not worried about a thing. He's, he's certainly not afraid for his life. It feels both very personal and impersonal at the same time. And I think that that has been a big contributing factor to how strong the community's response to this has been. Nobody who watches that video comes away thinking anything other than that was murder. Many, many times in these situations, politicians or other people in, in power, uh, you know, they they... They use language like allegedly, like presumed, you know, they, they talk about these things in uncertain terms until a jury has come down with a decision on whether, whether the offending party is guilty or not guilty. Um, but I have heard several times people in power just straight up referring to George Floyd's death as a murder. Most notably, the commissioner for the Minnesota Department of Public Safety, John Harrington, uh, during a press conference fairly early on, uh, 
in uh, in this whole situation. Uh, he he was just he was calling it a murder. Um, and yeah, when there's when there's absolutely no doubt in in anybody's mind uh, about what this was, the response is universal, right? We we all condemn it. We all want change. We all feel like we need to do something. A lot of focus, a lot of scrutiny has been placed on the Minneapolis Police Department, but that isn't really anything new. Um, the the Minneapolis Police Department um, politicians at the city level have been trying to reform the the department for years and years and years. Some things with actual results. Uh, soon after George Floyd's death, um, all four of the police officers who were involved in it were fired by the Minneapolis Police Department, which is something that would not have happened uh, four years ago. The, that policy was the result of protesting uh, back in 2016. And uh, and so we, we have made incremental changes over the years. Um, but that, you know, that was not enough to save George Floyd's life. Um, people have recently been sharing uh, a video clip of a, uh, a city council hearing um, at which the um, police chief was speaking. And, uh, and he was talking about how the, the police department's highest priority, um, as they have been reforming, has been... Uh, to focus on the sanctity of human life. And um, City Council member Steve Fletcher uh, had some some very choice words to say in response. Uh, I do want to just step back for a second and point out, though, uh, that some of the key things that you focused on that are transformational changes in the department, and I believe they are transformational changes in a department uh, that at times has been pretty broken, uh, one of the things that you said is uh, that is a part of your vision uh, is a value on the sanctity of life. One of the things that you said as a part of your vision is uh, honesty, uh, telling the truth. And I want to both reflect on how important those values are and what a low bar that is, uh, that we need to be shooting so much higher in our values and that if, if sanctity of life and truth were not values of this department, we should have been defunding it. Uh, and so it's very, very important. I am, it is critical work that you're doing uh, to get us to a place that we have trust uh, and that we value the sanctity of life. Um, and uh, shame on us for not doing it decades ago. Uh, and, and when people have a mistrust and when people have a skepticism about where we are, those should, that should be the absolute floor uh, for where we're trying to get and for the belief that the community should have uh, in this department. The Twin Cities community has come together in some amazing ways to remember George Floyd. Um, I've seen pictures of a, a huge mural uh, painted for him on, on the wall near, uh, near the intersection where he died. Um, and, uh, and, and a lot of other so that that's a permanent piece of art, um, and a lot of other temporary uh, things have gone up in that area as well. Lots of flowers being placed. 
chalk art in the street to remember George Floyd and other victims of police violence. In Washington, D.C., activists have painted Black Lives Matter, uh, and in Minneapolis, activists have painted Defund the Police in huge letters as tall as entire streets spanning entire blocks. Um, it's, it's incredible the things that people create in response to tragedies. In addition to visual art, people are also using their words to cope with the situation. I found a very powerful poem titled, I Can't Breathe, by a local writer named Abba Karnik. And she was cool enough to not only let me use her poem in this episode, but she also uh, recorded herself reading it. So let's listen to that. My name is Abba Karnik, um, and I am a Twin Cities writer and photographer. I have pieces published with Cal, Minnesota Asian Stories, and her online journal. And my passion lies in storytelling and finding the moments to capture. My writing is best known for pulling at the heartstrings of my community as I try to dive both into emotion and the lives of people around me. I can't breathe. I watched his last breath. Millions of people soon would as well. I can't breathe. He was murdered on my block next to the bus I ride, in front of children, in front of the world. I can't breathe. Crowds gathered and my eyes glistened, glistened with tears, glistened with light from the fires, glistened with hurt and fear and anger. I can't breathe. My city was burning, my people were scattering, my world was shattering, yelling, cursing, crying, in one ear and out the other, or so it seemed. My senses overwhelmed, my grief inexplicable. I can't breathe. The haze drifted like fog, blocking the view of the city, clouding the hearts of the oppressed. The unheard were here, they were pleading. I was pleading, let them be heard. I can't breathe. Flowers, thousands, lay on the streets. Graffiti line the walls of the train and the businesses. Fuck the 12. Black Lives Matter. Society awakens. I can't breathe. This is my city. My city. I ache as history again repeats, never letting up as injustice hits the streets. Ashes from the fires settled on lawns and houses asking to be seen, needing to be seen. I can't breathe. I feel unheard at home, so I take to the streets, peaceful, marching, strong. I can't breathe. When will future history books remove the white authoritative narrative and choose truth? Oh, Minneapolis. Oh, Minneapolis, I can't breathe. The feeling that has surprised me the most in all of this was a couple of days after George Floyd died. I was making myself lunch, just frying up a simple skillet dinner from the freezer 
And as I was standing there in the kitchen, I just thought to myself, George Floyd will never be able to do this kind of thing ever again. And I felt I felt guilty about being alive when George wasn't. I don't think I've fully processed that yet. I, I still don't know what to think of it. But the fact of the matter is, is that George Floyd should be alive today. He should be enjoying life, but he can't. I've also in some ways grappled with what my role in all of this is. Um, a couple of days after George's death, um, before the protests and riots really started, uh, I, was, I was out on a walk in, in my Frogtown neighborhood, and uh, I saw some St. Paul police officers with a black man in handcuffs, and, and I felt afraid for him. I wasn't sure what I should do. Should I get out my camera and start recording in case the police did something bad to this man? Should I intervene? Would that do any good? That particular situation did seem calm, though, so uh, I did end up moving on, continuing with my walk, and I don't know if that was the right choice. And not everybody has the privilege of responding that way in the presence of police, of, of not having to fear for their own safety, but, but fearing for the safety of others. Um, when I went to the protest in Oakdale at Derek Chauvin's house, initially uh, the protest was very, very peaceful, and uh, you know there were just a few local Oakdale cops there blocking off the street for from from uh, traffic access because you know to to keep us uh, protesters from getting run over, I suppose. But then um, later in the evening. A bunch of uh, police in riot gear showed up, and uh, and that's that's when things started to get tense. And uh, and as soon as those police started marching down the street towards us, um, I overheard a mother saying this to her son. And that absolutely melted my heart, because nobody should have to worry that much when the people who are sworn to keep us safe show up. There's also been a lot of exuberance, um, some joy from the community. Uh, a lot of the protests that I have gone to have, you know, while while. The point, of course, is uh, to focus on, on police reform and uh, breaking down systemic racism. The fact that we're all there for a unified, singular purpose um, kind of makes it into a party a little bit, um, especially when news breaks about specific things that we are looking for being achieved. Um, I saw a, a this amazing photo of a young man who was breaking the news to all of the people um, at at a vigil uh, on on Chicago and uh, and 38th Street um, at the at the site of George Floyd's death. 
he was breaking the news that Derek Chauvin had been arrested, and the the exuberance in this photo is amazing. Now, of course, not every aspect of uh, the response to this tragedy uh, has been universally loved. Um, there, there has been rioting and looting uh, in the wake of, of some of the protests. And this, more than anything else, I think, has uh, distracted a little bit from from what we should all be focused on. Um, there, there are some people who seem to have become more concerned with material destruction than with the killings of black people at the hands of police. And, and the fact that those people are concerned more with, with property, with buildings, that is disgusting to me. Now, to be clear, I'm not happy that looting is happening. I don't, I don't condone it. Um, but I understand why it happened, at least initially. Uh, and you know what? I think that I'm not going to be able to put this any better than Martin Luther King Jr. did uh, in his speech from at Stanford University. Um, a lot of people have been sharing that, that speech around. So let's listen to what he had to say over 50 years ago. For a little bit of context uh, in this speech... MLK had just been talking about how economic inequality between blacks and whites was worse at that time than it had been 20 years prior. And I think those words uh, definitely still ring true today in in 2020. Uh, And that, oof. All of these things have brought about a great deal of despair and a great deal of desperation, a great deal of disappointment and even bitterness in the Negro communities. And today all of our cities confront huge problems. All of our cities are potentially powder kegs as a result of the continued existence of these conditions. Many in moments of anger, Many in moments of deep bitterness engage in riots. And let me say, as I've always said, and I will always continue to say, that riots are socially destructive and self-defeating. I'm still convinced that nonviolence is the most potent weapon available to oppress people in their struggle for freedom and justice. I feel that violence will only create more social problems than they will solve, that in a real sense it is impractical for the Negro to even think of mounting a violent revolution in the United States. So I will continue to condemn riots and continue to say to my brothers and sisters that this is not the way continue to affirm that there is another way. But at the same time, 
it is as necessary for me to be as vigorous in condemning the conditions which cause persons to feel that they must engage in riotous activities as it is for me to condemn riots. I think America must see that riots do not develop out of thin air. Certain conditions continue to exist in our society which must be condemned as vigorously as we condemn riots. But in the final analysis, a riot is the language of the unheard. What is it that America has failed to hear? It has failed to hear that the plight of the Negro poor has worsened over the last few years. It has failed to hear that the promises of freedom and justice have not been met. And it has failed to hear that large segments of white society are more concerned about tranquility and the status quo than about justice, equality, and humanity. And so in a real sense, our nation's summers of riots are caused by our nation's winters of delay. And as long as America postpones justice, we stand in the position of having these recurrences of violence and riots over and over again. Social justice and progress are the absolute guarantors of riot prevention. Now, we also have more contemporary voices to uh, listen to on this subject. Um, there was a very good speech made by Killer Mike, who's an activist down in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, who talked about looting as well. I didn't want to come, and I don't want to be here. I'm the son of an Atlanta City police officer. Um, my cousin is an Atlanta City police officer, and my other cousin, East Point police officer. And I got a lot of love and respect for police officers, down to the original eight police officers in Atlanta, that even after becoming police, had to dress in a YMCA because white officers didn't want to get dressed with niggers. And here we are 80 years later, I watched a white officer assassinate a black man. And I know that tore your heart out. And I know it's crippling. And I have nothing positive to say in this moment. Because I don't want to be here. But I'm responsible to be here because it wasn't just Dr. King and people dressed nicely who marched and protested to progress this city and so many other cities. It was people like my grandmother, people like my aunts and uncles who were members of SCLC and NAACP, and in particular, Reverend James Orange, Mrs. Alice Johnson, and Reverend Love, who we just lost last year. So I'm duty bound to be here to simply say that it is your duty not to burn your own house down for anger with an enemy. It is your duty to fortify your own house so that you may be a house of refuge in times of organization. And now is the time to plot, plan, strategize organize and mobilize 
It is time to beat up prosecutors you don't like at the voting booth. It is time to hold mayoral offices accountable, chiefs and deputy chiefs. Atlanta is not perfect, but we're a lot better than we ever were, and we're a lot better than cities are. I'm mad as hell. I woke up wanting to see the world burn down yesterday because I'm tired of seeing black men die. He casually put his knee on a human being's neck for nine minutes as he died like a zebra in the clutch of a lion's jaw. And we watch it like murder porn over and over again. So that's why children are burning to the ground. They don't know what else to do. And it is the responsibility of us to make this better right now. We don't want to see one officer charged. We want to see four officers prosecuted and sentenced. We don't want to see targets burning. We want to see the system that sets up for systemic racism burnt to the ground. And as I sit here in Georgia, Homer Stevens, Georgia, former vice president of the Confederacy, white man said that law, fundamental law stated that whites were naturally the superior race and the confederacy was built on a cornerstone it's called a cornerstone speech look it up the cornerstone speech that blacks would always be subordinate that officer believed that speech because he killed that man like an animal in this city officers have done horrendous things and they have been prosecuted this city's cut different in this city, you can find over 50 restaurants owned by black women. I didn't say minority, and I didn't say women of color. So after you burn down your own home, what do you have left but char and ash? CNN, Ted did a great thing. I love CNN, I love Cartoon Network, but I'd like to say to CNN right now, karma's a mother. Stop feeding fear and anger every day. Stop making people feel so fearful. Give them hope. I'm glad they only took down a sign and defaced a building and they're not killing human beings like that policeman did. I'm glad that they only destroyed some brick and mortar and they didn't rip a father from a son. They didn't rip a, fa a son from a mother like the policeman did. When a man yells for his mother in duress and pain and she's dead, he is essentially yelling, please, God, don't let it happen to me. And we watch that. So my question for us on the other side of this camera is after it burns, will we be left with charred or will we rise like a phoenix out of the ashes that Atlanta has always done? Will we use this as a moment to say that we will not do what other cities have done? And in fact, we will get better than we've been. We got good enough to destroy cash bonds. You don't have to worry about going to jail for some petty. We got smart enough to decriminalize marijuana. How smart are we going to be in the next 15 or 20 years to keep us ahead of this curve? So that much like when South Africa suffered apartheid, you had Andy and other politicians that could make sure that Atlanta said, Coca-Cola, we love you. But if you don't pull out of South Africa, we're going to leave. We're not going to drink Coca-Cola anymore. Coca-Cola jumped on their side and apartheid ended. So we have an opportunity now. Because I'm mad, I don't have any good advice. But what I can tell you is that if you sit in your homes tonight, instead of burning your home to the ground, you will have time to properly plot, plan, strategize, and organize, and mobilize in an effective way. 
And two of the most effective ways is first taking your butt to the computer and making sure you fill out your senses so that people know who you are and where you are. The next thing is making sure you exercise your political bully power and going to local elections and beating up the politicians that you don't like. You got a prosecutor sent your partner to jail and you know it was bullshit. Put a new prosecutor in there. Now's your election to do it. You want a different senator that's more progressive that promotes marijuana through? Now's the time to do that. But it is not time to burn down your own home. I love and I respect you. I hate I don't have more to say. I hate I can't fix it in a snap. I hate Atlanta's not perfect for as good as we are. But we have to be better than this moment. We have to be better than burning down our own homes. Because if we lose Atlanta, what else we got? We lose an ability to plot, to plan, to strategize, to organize, and to properly mobilize. I want you to go home. I want you to talk to 10 of your friends. I want you guys to come up with real solutions. I would like for the Atlanta City Police Department to bring back the Community Review Board, one that Alice Johnson was formerly under, under Chief Turner. We need a review board here before an officer does some stupid shit. We need to get ahead of it. That's my recommendation to my mayor and my chief. Let's get a review board, let's get ahead of it, and let's give them power. We don't need an officer that makes a mistake once, twice, three times, and finally he kills a boy on national TV, and the next thing you know, the country is burning down. We don't need a dumbass president repeating what segregationists said. When you start looting, we start shooting. But the problem is some officers black and some people are going to shoot back. And that's not good for our community either. I love and respect you all. I hope that we find a way out of it because I don't have the answers, but I do know we must plot, we must plan, we must strategize, organize, and mobilize. The day after the first night of, of riots and looting, um, at least the first night that spread over here into the St. Paul area, um, I took a little bike ride down University Avenue to uh, take some photos of the the destruction that had happened. Um, so feel free to uh, take a look at the photos that I took. Um, but definitely one thing that that the photos cannot get across, and frankly this podcast can't really get across either, is how strange it is. The smell of buildings that have been burning. That's definitely something that um, I've never had occasion to smell before. Um, and and the, I mean, the number of, of buildings along University Avenue that were that were truly burnt was um, pretty minimal um, compared to what uh, what Lake Street over in Minneapolis got. Um, but it's still there. Speaking of celebrations, though, um, I I did feel a lot of relief and a bit of pride and some exuberance when I saw the video of the 3rd Precinct building of the Minneapolis Police Department uh, being burned and, uh, and people shooting off fireworks in celebration. That, I feel, was definitely a, a positive uh piece of of rioting um because that that was that's very specific um it's very it's targeting the organization that is at fault here um that that we are in opposition to 
Um, and, and that was, it was cathartic, but for most of the rest of it, um, yeah, we, we don't need to be making, we don't need to be burning our own houses down as, as Killer Mike said, we don't need to be making it harder for the people who live in our communities to get the supplies that they need. Um, and that does bring up the question of who exactly is, doing this rioting um and there's i mean there's no simple answer to that of course i'm sure it's a mixture of you know some some locals who are feeling very angry um and need to lash out some people who are just taking an opportunity in the chaos some people from out of town coming in to start stuff who don't have the community's best interests in mind. Um, but um, there's, yeah, there's no one simple answer to this. Uh, and and the whole back and forth between was this outside agitators, was this locals, I think that's a misguided uh, debate and, and really just uh, distracts from the real the real problem at hand which is systemic racism and police brutality i have been pretty impressed with the way that a lot of useful resources have popped up during this crisis um and uh, technology played a role in a lot of those things um First, I suppose, like, it, it's important to note that the the surveillance state goes both ways, I guess. Um, it, it, you know, the, the, the powers that be, the government uh, is going to do everything that it can to keep tabs on citizens, but also uh, us citizens were able to document and, uh, and keep tabs on those in power. Um, now, research has shown that, uh, you know, body cams on on police officers has not been effective at uh, reducing instances of police brutality. Um, but in this case, the fact that uh, ordinary citizens have uh, cameras with them at all times uh, was was very effective at um, drawing attention to this incident and uh, and allowing it to, be the catalyst for for change. We've seen many, many communities rapidly converting resources uh, to help with this crisis. Lots of people are volunteering, supplies are being redistributed, um, and in order to facilitate all of these things, um, people are very effectively using digital social networks um and they're they're really like i've noticed that a lot of social networks have been repurposed uh in the same way that like physical resources are being repurposed um people like a lot of people who normally would be tweeting about other things uh, i've noticed them almost exclusively switching over to uh only only spreading information about evolving situations, about where supplies, where volunteers are needed, about what kinds of events are going on, um, stuff like that. So that has been, um, and, and, and that has been something that I very personally have been focusing on. Um, I've, I've 
even had a few things that uh, and I that I thought of posting and then you know thought about it and I'm like well this doesn't really have anything to do with the crisis at hand so I have um, deferred those posts for a later time when uh, when we're not currently facing a, a, a direct crisis. It was pretty impressive, though not too surprising, that uh, the murderer immediately got doxxed. Um, as soon as people found out who he was, uh, his address got posted online. And, um, you know, that that is uh, the kind of thing that we definitely have to watch out for now in the digital age, um, which does feel rather strange because um, if you think back... 40, 50 years, it was very, very normal for uh, everybody's addresses and phone numbers to be listed in a phone book, um, and that's um, that's not the norm anymore. That is, people, people would feel very strange about their address being listed publicly, um, but I think it was definitely important for people to be able to go and protest in front of the murderer's house. I was very impressed by the way that a few people uh, used custom Google Maps to, um, in real time, distribute important information to uh, to a wide audience. Um, in particular, the Minneapolis situation map was uh, was very very useful. Um, as time went on, every like evening and every morning, uh, the the creator of this map would catalog uh, different um, different incident reports and uh, and important information about where things were going on at what times. Um, and I found it very very helpful to be able to track and see like okay how close, especially how close to my home were. Um, events taking place. Um, did I need to worry about anything? Were there any events that I could go to to help? Um, another map that somebody created was a um, a status map for a bunch of grocery stores and things like that, um, because a lot of large grocery stores uh, were were put out of commission for a while uh, from all of the looting, um, and somebody compiled a list of uh, a bunch of smaller grocery stores that, that may still be open, and uh, and they did go through some effort to uh, call a bunch of them, I believe, and, and verify whether they were still open or not. Um, Facebook groups popped up with, uh, you know, where people could post volunteer opportunities um, and help coordinate that way. I found it very helpful to use a flight tracker app um, unexpectedly to to be able to track where very large events were going on um, because where there are very large events, in all likelihood, local news uh, corporations are going to be sending helicopters to take footage from above. And so um, even though I, I don't usually watch... Uh, local television stations, um, I, uh, I was able to kind of follow along and know, for example, when there's a large protest going on at the state capitol, um, because I could look on, on in a flight tracker app and see that there is a helicopter circling the capitol grounds. One thing that I was very 
surprised by was the fact that um, shipping from online stores got pretty disrupted. Um, usually, I expect you know the the shop online and have something delivered directly to your door model to be a lot more resilient than like the big box store model. Um, but in this case, at least during this uh, during this crisis. Uh, I take it that uh, delivery trucks were were being stopped and looted um, in addition to the the stationary stores that were getting looted. And so um, Amazon, at least, uh, stopped delivering uh, items to to our area uh, for a little while. So where do we go from here? Um First, systemic racism is a public health crisis. We have to recognize that, and we have to treat it as one. We have to treat it with the kind of urgency that a public health crisis deserves. Justice must be served, and when I say that, it's a little bit complicated. Um, I personally believe that the purpose of the criminal justice system should be exclusively to prevent future crimes. So while I don't believe that like punishment is the end all be all of the criminal justice system, I don't believe that that is the core function of it. Um, Punishment that works as a deterrence can be appropriate, but it shouldn't be the main focus. So in this case, um, I believe that punishing the officers involved definitely feels appropriate because when officers feel like they there aren't any consequences to their actions, then they will act with impunity. Um, but also, abolishing the police department, or at the very least, like radical, radical changes to how the police department uh, operates, would prevent this kind of thing from happening in the future. So I believe that abolishing the police department is a part of the justice process for George Floyd's killing. It's very tempting to ask ourselves, how can we get back to normal as fast as possible? But normal isn't really what we want to get back to, because normal wasn't working for George Floyd. We need to create a new world, a new system that works for everybody. And none of this, none of this situation has been normal from the beginning because this is a police brutality crisis on top of a pandemic. And I, and I just like every time that I have gone to a protest, um, I have thought to myself about the explosion of COVID-19 cases that are going to come in the wake of all of this. Um, thankfully, the the state of Minnesota recognizes that, and uh, they are offering free COVID-19 testing for people who have been at the protests. So um, I have a link in the show notes to a uh, the, the webpage where you can look up what, what locations are, um, are giving tests for people who've been at protests. And on top of all of that, we're going through a huge recession, and we have an ineffective president in office. Um, so, 
Yeah, is there anything that 2020 is not going to throw at us? I don't know. It certainly will be a year to be remembered. And one of the most striking images that I have seen in all of this is um, there are a few graduating high school seniors who have shown up to George Floyd protests wearing their graduation caps and gowns because they were not able to go to a traditional in-person graduation ceremony. So they they brought their graduation ceremony to the protests. Um, and that's, that's very, very powerful. Um, I said a few months ago when we went straight from a, a teacher's strike uh, into distance learning as a result of uh, of the pandemic i said that n- nobody nobody's ever going to forget the uh, the school year 2019 to 2020 these the seniors who are graduating this year will have stories to tell for for many many years um and that is even more true now this whole thing also illustrated to me something that i didn't realize um it's just how much statewide, the state legislature, the state government, um, just how much sway they have on our local policing structures here in the Twin Cities, which feels very, very wrong to me um, because we, we have all of these, these senators, these representatives from very rural areas of the state who feel like they have a say and feel like they know what they're talking about when it comes to safety and security here in the core urban areas of Minneapolis and St. Paul. And that doesn't seem right to me. Um, I don't know what exactly the solution to that is because... um, the state is always going to be, you know, a major source of funding for local governments. You know, they they give grants and whatnot, um, and so they will always have some influence over how how that money is being allocated. Um, but the amount of focus that um, that outstate legislatures put on the 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 security practices of municipalities in the Twin Cities uh, doesn't seem right to me. Of course, our main focus for where we go from here um, has to be on alternatives to policing. Um, the Campaign Zero project uh, has been doing a lot of research over the years on what kinds of things are effective, what kinds of policies are effective at reducing police brutality um, and systemic racism. And uh, they, they recently um, came out with a, a very succinct uh, campaign called Eight Can't Wait, um, which is uh, a list of eight policies that all cities should implement immediately. Um, these are policies that that don't require like federal or state level 
legislation uh, in order to be put into place. Um, but these are like the, the eight things that cities can do immediately to most effectively curb um, police brutality uh, while we work our way towards getting rid of traditional police departments and and putting into place community-driven health and safety initiatives. Now, I admit that I have not um, looked comprehensively at the research on what kinds of alternatives are the most likely to work in place of a traditional police force, um, but uh, I, I have seen a lot of very positive um, progress in Minneapolis communities where uh, during uh, several the several nights in a row of rioting and looting that was going on um, and the the police and National Guard were not a reliable source of security for people and uh, so, District councils and community groups um, figured out ways to for citizens to help keep each other safe, um, and that was that was a very it seemed like a very good response. I don't know how many of those things were would be you know long term solutions, um, but I think we will find out before long. Um, what what kinds of uh, alternatives uh, there are that are that are promising because the Minneapolis City Council, um, enough members of the city council have announced that they intend to disband the Minneapolis Police Department. Um, enough of them to have a veto-proof vote on this, which is amazing. Um, I would it, I would not have expected even a week ago that there was enough political will in the Minneapolis City Council to take a step like this. Um, but it, I am very very excited by it. Um, this is this is news that literally just came out very recently on June seventh, the afternoon of June seventh, and. Um, I would love to be able to push the St. Paul City Council to uh, do something similar. Um, I suspect that St. Paul and many other cities throughout the country uh, will probably be taking like a wait and see uh, stance on this. All eyes will be on Minneapolis as as they uh, put together their community based safety systems and i think it's very important for us all to keep in mind that as minneapolis is forging this new path um that yes things are probably not going to be perfect right away uh we we will like this will be a long term uh transition and uh and so i i think we need to make sure that we aren't rushing to conclusions about the efficacy of, of these efforts. So I am very, very excited by, by these developments. Um, I'm amazed. Uh, it feels like we, we've never been able to make this much progress uh, 
based on community activism before. Um, and, uh, yeah, there's, there's, there's a video clip of, uh, of George Floyd's daughter who has the most heart wrenching thing to say about all of this. (laughs) So yes, George Floyd, we're doing everything we can to make sure that your death was not in vain, that you're helping to change the world. And it's important for us to remember that, of course, it's not just George Floyd. There have been years and years of black and brown people being killed at the hands of police departments. So let's end today by hearing a few of their names and remembering. George Floyd. Jamar Clark. Philando Castile. Tamir Rice, Eric Gardner, Sandra Bland, Ahmad Arbery, Brianna Taylor, Alton Sterling, Freddie Gray, Ralph Bell, Michael Brown, Laquan McDonald, Walter Scott, Trayvon Martin, John Crawford II, Stephen DeMarco Taylor, Terrence Franklin, Antoine Rose, Sean Reed, Ariane McCree, Darius Tarver, Devon Bailey, Larry Jackson Jr., Nakia Moody, Alfred Abuka Sanders, Pua Lee, Cardale Handy, Phil Quinn, Izel Ford, Dante Parker, Tysel Nelson, George Mann, Akai Gurley, Michelle Cusio, Tanisha Anderson, Remain Brisbane, Matthew Ajibade, Isaac Aden, Fong Lee, Jeremy Reed, Frank Smart, Natasha McKenna, Anthony Hill, David McCatty. The Nexus, the Nexus, the Nexus TV podcasts from, from the, the technological, technological convergence. convergence.